The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. It's 13 and 14. If you're reading from the Bible underneath your chair, it's on page 962. If you would stand with me for the reading of God's word. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. This is God's word. Well, welcome this morning. Thank you for uh, worshiping with us on uh, Father's Day. Before we get started... What we're going to do is we're just going to hit pause and we're going to say a prayer, asking God to turn our attention to his word, asking him to help us understand his word this morning. Um, before we do, I just wanted to just come alongside what Pastor John said this morning and just reiterate this idea about Father's Day. If you remember back on Mother's Day, we mentioned this idea of the good, the bad, and the hard. And for many of us, when we think about Father's Day, think about the kind of father that we had, thinking about the kind of um, fatherhood maybe we find ourselves in. For a lot of us, those ideas of the good, the bad, and the hard are just something that ring true for us. You think about your father, and maybe you think about good things. He was a good father. He taught you the gospel. He pointed you to Jesus. He, he served, and he worked, and he sacrificed for the family. For m- some of us, maybe like that is the complete opposite idea of what happened to you when you think about your father, and it's more ideas of the bad. For others of us, it might just be that idea of the hard, whether it's circumstances or various situations that have landed in our lap. We think of hardness and not good when we think about our father. So no matter where you are on the spectrum this morning, whether it's you thinking about the good, the bad, or the hard in regard to your father, What you need to know is that you have a heavenly father who is always good, who is for us in Jesus Christ, who loves us and has served us by sending his son to come and die, even dying a death that was horrible, a death on the cross. And so even if you have a good father or you find yourself in the bad or the hard, the idea this morning is this, you have a heavenly father who more than enough makes up for the kind of example that you had in your earthly father, if you find yourself anywhere on that spectrum, the good, the bad, and the hard. So what we're going to do is just hit pause, we're going to pray, we're going to ask God to, to turn our hearts and our minds to him, even in the midst of the good, the bad, and the hard, turn our minds to a heavenly father who loves us in Jesus Christ before we turn our attention to these words this morning. So why don't you join me in prayer? God, I pray that you would overwhelm us this morning with the realities of yourself, how you are the Heavenly Father, the perfect example of what fatherliness is to look like. 
Now, God, many of us have experienced good things in regard to our earthly fathers. Many of us have experienced bad things. And many of us have experienced hard things at the hands of our earthly fathers. But God, my prayer is that no matter where we land on the spectrum this morning, we would not check those things at the door, but that we would bring them to you in faith, in trust, that our experiences do not negate the reality of your good right, awesome, merciful fatherliness to us. For those of us who are in Christ, we have a heavenly Father who is good and who does good. And God, I pray that as we turn our attention to the Scriptures this morning, that that truth, that reality, would be what lingers in our minds this morning. God, soften our hearts to hear and to receive these words of truth from your scriptures this morning. It's in your name I pray. Amen. I want you to think about this this question here this morning. It's, It's really a question that comes right out of verse 13, and it's the question of what does it mean to act like a man? What does it mean to act like a man? If our time together this morning was a bit more of an open dialogue and I were to ask you, give me examples of men who you think act like men, chances are there would be several, several kinds of names and examples that would come forward. Maybe we would hear things like, well, when I, when I think of a man who acts like a man, I think of somebody like John Wayne. Or maybe it's like Indiana Jones or James Bond, Chuck Norris, Sylvester Stallone, Bruce Willis, all these sort of like 80s and 90s sort of action Hollywood stars, right? These are men's men, men who, who, who act, men who get things done. And as these names are just being mentioned, my guess is that most of us would nod our heads in agreement. Yeah, these, these are sort of like examples of manly, manly men, men who act like men. In various ways, these men, these characters, whether in their real lives or the the characters they portray on the movie screens, these men do portray admirable hints of masculinity. But in some glaringly obvious ways, the behavior of these men also fall extremely short when it comes to what it means to act like a man. So if we were to say, what does it mean to act like a man, and we were just to merely point to these sort of examples that that we would toss out as the answer to our question, it would be to miss the mark, to horribly miss the mark of what it means to define true manhood. But where these examples fall short, they do serve a purpose. They serve the purpose of exposing our need for a better witness. We need people who who will display true godly masculinity in ways that these other men like John Wayne and Chuck Norris or whoever it might be, these men fall horribly short, but what they do is they show us a need for a better witness. And it's not until we turn to the scriptures and we ask that question, what does it mean to act like a man? When we take that question and we apply it to Scripture, asking the Scriptures for an answer, that is when we begin to find examples of godly masculinity all over the place. Ultimately, examples of masculinity which reflect the true picture of masculinity, Jesus Christ, who was and is the crux of what it means to act 
like a man. So as we turn our attention to 1 Corinthians chapter 16 this morning, and we just look at these two, these two fairly short verses, what we find is that the Apostle Paul is wrapping up his first letter that he wrote to the church in a city called Corinth. And for the past 15 chapters of this letter, Paul has been addressing a lot of messiness that's going on in the church. And now he's going to end his letter. He's, he's landing the plane. He's, he's rounding third and heading home. Chapter 16 are like his concluding thoughts. And as he's doing so, landing the plane, after spending 15 chapters of addressing a lot of messiness in the church, what he's going to do specifically is call out the men of the church for their role in moving forward with all the things he's been talking about for the past 15 chapters. And as he does so, as he turns and sort of focuses his gaze in on the men who are in the church in Corinth, Paul is going to give us a picture of what godly masculinity should look like. And the first thing we're going to see is this, that godly masculinity is marked by action. Godly masculinity is marked by action. We see this in verse 13. In rapid-fire staccato, notice what Paul says. I mean, he's not given a lot of explanation. He's not, he's not being verbose along with his words. He's like, listen, men, you need to be watchful. You need to stand firm in the faith. You need to act like men. And you need to be strong. He gives four commands. Not suggestions. Not options, not if you feel like it on Tuesday and maybe the other six days of the week, if you don't really get around to it, that's okay. No, he comes out with four imperatives, four commands, and he does so with the intention of grabbing a hold of his listeners and motivating them to step up as men. But notice that these first four commands, they come off, they're, they're sort of marked with heavy military metaphor. There's something, there's something very action-oriented in the, in the realm of, of military, or military warrior, warlike mentality that, that these, these four commands swim in. To think about what it means to be watchful, to stand firm in the faith, to act like men, or to be mature and courageous, to, to be strong, these are, these are sort of militaristic kinds of ideas. And in essence, Paul is showing us that godly masculinity, it has a wartime or a warrior mindset about it, okay? So Paul knows something. He knows the battle that we are in. If you remember all the way back into the, the series we did on the book of Daniel, and we looked at Daniel chapter 10, there's more to this physical world than we see. There are warring realities going on in the heavens, Paul in Ephesians 6 says, our battle, the battle for believers, men and women who are in Christ, is against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, he says. And the plain fact is that Satan, the enemy of our soul, is not satisfied with men who strive to live out godliness in their lives. See, Satan has a plan for your life, but so does God. God's plan is to bless and to keep you in Christ. But Satan's plan is to curse you and to do whatever he can to get you to abandon Christ. 
And for this reason, because of this reality, Paul comes to us, comes to the men here in 1 Corinthians 16 and says, listen, I need you to make a connection in your mind. I want you to connect the realities of godly masculinity to a wartime mindset. He's calling for men who've been galvanized by the gospel to be watchful, stand firm in the faith, to act like men, and to be strong. And so Paul starts by showing us this truth that gospel men are watchful. Gospel men are watchful. This is a call to pay attention, to be alert, to be awake, to be vigilant and discerning, to have your head on a swivel, to constantly be, to be in attack mode, crouched down and ready. This isn't a call to passivity. A call to be lackadaisical. This is a call to sort of be always in that, that wartime mindset, sort of that front lines mentality where you've got your eyes on, you know where the enemy is, you know his schemes, you know his plans, you know when he attacks, you know what he's up to because you are being watchful. And so whether it's in our thoughts, what we watch, or how we speak, the call from Paul To be watchful is to be watchful over our hearts and to be on guard against the schemes of the enemy. We are called to know ourselves because gospel men have an enemy. And we know we have an enemy, an enemy who has a a soul desire, who is fueled and motivated to come and steal, to kill, and to destroy See, Peter issues a similar warning in 1 Peter 5 when he writes this. Listen, he uses very similar words here to what Paul is saying. In 1 Peter, he says, be sober-minded. That's that idea of be, be alert. Don't go around marked by passivity. Go around marked by intentionality. Be sober-minded. Be watchful, he says, the exact same phrase we find here. Why be sober-minded? Why be watchful? What does he say? Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. If you've ever watched the National Geographic channel, inevitably you will have seen sort of like the African safari sort of episodes, like where they zoom in on the lions and there's like this sort of this water buffalo just lackadaisically traipsing along. And inevitably, that water buffalo gets taken out by the lion. But you, do you notice how the, the lion does it? Like when there's that herd of water buffalo, the lion doesn't just come streaking in like a bullet and just smash into the herd and try to take out whatever he can. Inevitably, what he does is he just comes and he gets close to the herd. And then he just sort of sits. And he begins to blend in to the surroundings. And he just waits. And he waits. And he waits until inevitably... The pack becomes comfortable with his presence. And then what happens is you've got some water buffalo who's not being watchful, and he just sort of starts to drift out beyond the camp, and then what happens? Gets taken out. He's not on guard. He got comfortable with his vulnerabilities, and instead of being marked by intentionality, he got, he got marked by being lackadaisical, and he gets killed. The adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. What you need to know is this. As a gospel man, Satan is personally hunting you down because you belong to Jesus. 
If there's one person in the world who is infuriated by your call to plant your feet firmly at the foot of the cross to say, here I stand for the name of Christ, I will be a gospel man, it is to paint a target on your back. Satan is infuriated by this and he will do whatever it takes to hunt you down. And that's why Paul says a mark of godly masculinity is recognizing that Satan aims for our weaknesses and hunts down those who are not being watchful. So the call to be watchful is the call to know where you're vulnerable because Satan himself knows where you are vulnerable. It's not to to be lazy. It's to be watchful. It's to be intentional, to know the threat around you and to react appropriately. So the question becomes this. Where are you vulnerable and prone to not be watchful, man? Where are you vulnerable and prone to not be watchful? Is it when you're tired and your guard is down? Long day's work, so you come home, the kid does something innocuous, and you just strike out at him and lash out with your words. I was just tired. No, man, you're sinning. You're being controlled by anger. You're not being controlled by Christ. Is it when you're home alone or traveling and you feel anonymous? Hey, no one's ever going to know. If I watch this channel, if I surf this website, the history on my web browser, it's not on my computer at home, no one's ever going to find out. Or maybe it's when you're under trial and stress and you're tempted to look for escape thinking, man, I'm owed a little something. Work week's been hard. My wife hasn't been really loving to me. Like I'm owed this little side pleasure over here. The enemy is very pleased when we find ourselves not being watchful in this way. That's why Paul says, make no provision for the flesh. To gratify its desires. Therefore, he says, be watchful so you can spot the enemy coming and then flee from the danger. He moves on. Next thing that Paul shows us is that gospel men stand firm in the faith. They're watchful and they stand firm in the faith. So if you go back into chapter 15, Paul wrote this concerning the gospel. He said, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, he says. So to stand firm in the faith is to stand firm in the gospel. Gospel men are men who've been transformed by the resurrected Christ. They are grounded in the Bible, and they know how to articulate the gospel. Daily, they cling to the good news that Christ died for our sins, Christ was buried, and that Christ was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. They cling to this truth. They articulate this truth. They preach this truth to themselves. They say, my feet are going to stand shoulder-width apart, and I'm going to bury myself onto this reality, and from this place, I am not going to move. I am a gospel man because I've been transformed by the realities of the good news of Jesus Christ. But to stand firm is to also have a tenacity for the truth of the Word of God, which is marked by a red-hot devotional life. So it's not just this idea of, I'm going to stand here firmly on the 
on the gospel, clinging to this truth, but what I'm also going to do is stand here firmly on the realities that the way I know the gospel, the way that I learn to articulate the gospel, is by getting myself into the word of God, clinging with a, with a tenacious attitude, clinging to the word of God, saying this is God's truth, and I'm going to do whatever it takes to get this into me, because I want to stand on something that's firm, and the thing that is firm is the gospel as found in the word of God, which is good for me and good for others. And I will stand here in this truth. See, gospel men ultimately stand firm in the faith by following in the footsteps of Jesus who remained watchful and relied on God's word when he himself was tempted. Remember Matthew chapter 4? Jesus goes out into the wilderness and he's tempted. As he goes out into the wilderness, Satan, the enemy, comes. What's he do? Gives him three temptations. And the common denominator between the three temptations is this. Jesus, I will give you things that are rightfully yours if you will just avoid the cross. Avoid the cross. I'll give you whatever is yours. I'll give you what is rightly belonging to you. Just don't go to the cross. And what does Jesus do every single time? One, he's watchful. Two, he stands firm by what? rebuking the temptations to avoid the cross with what? The word of God. And so Peter, or I'm sorry, Matthew shows us that Jesus stood firm in the faith by quoting scripture, and Matthew tells us that the devil left him. So in the end, standing firm in the faith, it looks like something. It actually looks like a man who is alert, a man who is watching who is steady and able to fight as he stands firm on the truth of the gospel as he's double-fisting the weapon, the double-edged sword of the word. That's what it means to be a gospel man who stands firm in the faith. Paul continues. Further, he shows us that gospel men act like men. Gospel men act like men. See, at this point, Paul appeals to the brothers in Christ to act like men. There's a lot that's wrapped up in this phrase, but mainly what's wrapped up in this phrase is this, the idea of being mature, being courageous. See, the, the call to act like men, notice that it's not a call to abuse women. It's not a call to be this sort of like crass-speaking man who delights to mistreat those who are weak. It's not a call to adopt some sort of inferior or superior mentality, looking down on those who you deem to be inferior. That's not what Paul is calling for when he says, act like men. This is ultimately the call to grow up. It's the call to act mature. It's the call to stop acting like a child. It's the call to be on guard. It's the call to stand firm. It's the call to take childish things away and put them away. It's time to act like a man, Paul says. But it also carries this idea of sacrificial responsibility. So it's courage, it's maturity, but it's also this idea of sacrificial responsibility. So instead of acting like Adam in the garden, who shirked his responsibility... When he should have stood up and said, Eve, we're not doing this. God has told us not to do it. Adam kinds of masculinity is the shirk responsibility kind of masculinity. 
But in Christ, we are new creatures. We're new creations. We are no longer living in the stream of Adam. We're living in the second Adam, the better Adam, the Adam who never shirked his responsibility, but completely owned his responsibility, the second Adam, Jesus Christ. And so when Paul is saying, listen, men of Corinth, act like men, in essence what he's saying is, listen, come and follow in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. Do whatever it takes to own your responsibility and sacrifice yourself so that you can serve others. After all, this is what Jesus did. Jesus, Mark tells us, came not to be served, but to what? Serve. Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for many. How did Jesus give his life as a ransom for many? He went to the cross and sacrificed himself for the good of others. See, gospel men model themselves ultimately after the one who is radically sacrificial to the point of death, even death on a cross. So when Paul says, act like a man, he is ultimately calling us to follow the pattern of the man, Jesus Christ. Lastly, in that last phrase there in verse 13, that idea of be strong, Paul is just simply showing us that gospel men are strong. Gospel men are strong. And it's with this fourth command, Paul, Paul issues the call to move beyond this, this perception of like sort of like macho weightlifting strength to spirit-filled gospel-driven strength. Ultimately, gospel men derive their strength from the power of the Holy Spirit in them. See, in his letter to the Ephesians, Paul prays for God the Father to, listen, strengthen us with power through His Spirit in our inner being. In other words, we're not to rely on our own strength. Rather, we are to rely on the strength of Christ in us. The kind of Christ-reliance that Paul is calling for is the, the kind of Christ-reliance which is marked by the strength that we see all throughout the New Testament. That's what Paul was calling for in Corinth, and it's what Paul is calling for here in Springfield. It's the kind of Christ-reliant strength that equips men to show up and to do hard work, to do more than just play it safe. To take a risk. It's the kind of Christ-reliant strength that equips men to cultivate thick skin, to get in the battle, to stop being passive, to be willing to stand up and take some criticism because they've actually stood firm in the gospel and they're willing to articulate the gospel no matter the, the shifting cultural whims about the views of God's word who has spoken clearly on matters. See, Christ-reliant strength is essential for the tasks men are called to do, the challenges that they're going to face. And what's great is that when we inevitably grow faint and when we inevitably fall exhausted because we will, because we're not Jesus, we have this hope that the Lord, the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth who does not faint or grow weary, listen, he gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk 
and not faint. That's the hope that we have in Christ-reliant strength. So notice that these four commands, they are marks of godly masculinity. But notice that they're not the only thing. All that has just been said has to be tempered. All that's just been said has to be tempered with the final command to let all that you do be done in love. It has to be. So in verse 14, Paul shows us that godly masculinity is grounded in love. It's grounded in love. Left by themselves, the commands to be watchful, to stand firm in the faith, to act like men and be strong, they will turn harsh and they will lead to abuse. Our only hope of obeying these commands is to look to Jesus, the perfect man who loved perfectly. See, God isn't calling you and I to be a macho man. He's calling us to be a humble man who leads from a place of compassion for others. This isn't some sort of like hairy-chested, weight-lifting, sort of, some sort of like, you know, machoistic mindset he's, he's laying out. This is how things are going to get fixed in Corinth. No, the way things are going to, quote, get fixed in Corinth is when men are humbled to the dust because they have been loved by God and are now equipped to love others. That's how things are going to change in Corinth, and that's how things are going to change in Springfield. When gospel men are marked by action, fueled by the love of Christ, which they have received. See, our ability as men to do everything in love is firmly grounded in the fact that we've first been loved by God. This is what I was just talking about. First John chapter 4, the apostle John says, Since God so loved us, we then also ought to love one another. So he's making a connection between that vertical and horizontal. Listen, bro, you've first been loved by God. He made the move towards you. In sin, you were running far from God. But in Christ, you now stand as one who has been first loved by God. And he says, because you have sort of received this top-down, horizontal first move from God loving you, you are now made new and equipped to look out on the horizontal planes of life and now begin to love others because you've first been loved by God. And so what he's doing is driving us to this place where we see that if we have the four commands of verse 13, if we could somehow stand here and go, I'm watchful. I stand firm in the faith. According to Scripture, I act like a man and I'm strong. But you are not marked as one who does everything in love. Paul says four minus one does not equal godly masculinity it's the whole package it's the whole package it's four plus one you've got to be one who does everything in love so in the end when you just zoom out and you look at verses 13 and 14 together really the aim of what Paul is driving at is that he just simply wants us to look and to act like Jesus. Right? Who perfectly displays all five of these commands? Jesus. Who's the one that was watchful, stood firm in the faith, acted like a, a man marked by genuine manhood? Who was strong? Who did everything in love? 
We could pull up the kids from the, the, the herd right now and go, what's the answer? What are they going to say? Jesus. Nailed it, man. <laughs> Nailed it. See, as gospel men, we are to walk in love like Jesus, as Paul reminds us when he says, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. And listen, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. We are to love like Jesus through acts of self-sacrifice. Some of my favorite scriptures here, Philippians 2, 3 through 8. We are to love like Jesus through acts of self-sacrifice. Here it is, doing nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, counting others more significant than ourselves. You see what he's saying there? Don't be the guy who's in love with yourself. Be, be the guy, be the man who's so in love with others that you're willing to do nothing from selfish ambition, he says. Nothing from conceit, but in humility, counting others more significant than ourselves. He continues, looking not only to your own interests, so yes, look to your own interests, but more importantly, look to the interest of others. And what's the motivating factor to be able to live like this? He says, by having this mind among yourselves, which is ours in Christ Jesus. So he says, here's the example for you to be, to be able to walk in this way. He says, look to Jesus. Because it was Jesus who was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But, so, so what did he do? If he's standing there going, listen, I'm not going to count equality with God a thing to be grasped. The, the idea is that he did something else. Well, what was the other thing that he did? Paul continues, he says, well, well he emptied himself. He, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant the creator of the world, now humbled to the point of servant of others, being born in the likeness of man, the son of God, now a babe, and being found in human form. What did he do? He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Christ is your example, men. Christ is your example of what godly masculinity looks like. So if you're here this morning, and whether you're a father or a grandfather, stepdad, a foster dad, or an adoptive dad, maybe you're yet to be a father, or perhaps you're a father who has, who's lost a child, no matter where you are on this, this spectrum, Paul is demonstrating the need that you and I have to be watchful, to stand firm in the faith, to act like men, and to be strong, grounding it all in the gospel imperative to do everything in the context of love. So here's what we're going to do this morning. Danny B., why don't you come on up here, buddy? I was thinking of a way that maybe we could drive this truth home. Why don't you come on over here and stand, man? And so what I want to do is sort of do a, we don't do this, man. Like, right, this is sort of weird for us. It's Father's Day, right? Can we do something a little bit, a little bit different, a little bit weird? Bob Bartolazzi agrees. That's, that's all I need right there. So um, I want to illustrate for us sort of like in a live action sort of way the kind of spiritual realities that the Apostle Paul is talking about, okay? So spiritually speaking, we're called to what? Be watchful, stand firm, act like men, be strong, do, every, do everything in love. But most times, we are not that way. 
okay? So why don't you turn and face me, put your, put your feet together, put your arms down to the side. Most times in life, spiritually speaking, this is, this is sort of the, the posture, spiritually speaking, that we take. We're just sort of standing there, feet together, hands by our side, just sort of lackadaisically traipsing through life. And the thing is, like, Dan, Dan's a big guy. I am not a big guy. But when Dan is standing here, feet together, arms down on my side, like, it doesn't take much. I mean, like, for me to, like, there's not a lot of resistance that comes from this sort of, you know, feet together, arm by your side kind of posture, right? Now, a better stance is to kick your feet apart, sort of shoulder width apart. Now, when I start to, to push on, I'm like, there's a, there's a little bit more, more resistance, okay? Like, it's, it's a little bit better than standing with your feet together, but it's, it's still easy to push them over. The kind of posture that Paul is advocating for here is sort of like the linebacker posture. Like, you're on the front line, the enemy's coming to you with feet shoulder width apart, you're your knees are bent a little bit, your arms are, are, are bowed up, so that whenever you come, like it's now you're starting to be able to lean in a little bit more, right? You can resist a little bit more. So spiritually speaking, like this is the kind of posture that Paul is saying. He's like saying, listen, man, be alert for once. Put, put your feet shoulder width apart, bend your knees, bow up your arms, and be on the lookout. Satan wants to take you out. Don't just stand there like this and be sniped like the water buffalo out on the edges of the herd. Be the gospel man formed by Christ who adopts a spiritual posture of feet apart, knees bent, arms up and ready. But Okay, so some of you guys, I, I asked you to come, to come on up here, so make your way on up here. But notice this, is that in the Bible, when Paul is writing these words to the men in Corinth, notice that he's not doing so to a single guy. He's doing so to a group of men. Gospel masculinity is meant to be played out in community. So now if like I'm, I'm Satan, I'm the, the roaring lion prowling around, adopt sort of that, that posture, right? I can come, he's, he's able to resist, he's able to push back. But imagine this. Imagine if this brother comes around and adopts the same posture and links up an arm. And imagine this brother comes around and does the same. And all you guys come around and form up, form up a circle. Make the circle, men. Feet shoulder width apart. Bend your knees. Bow up your arms here, okay? So now imagine if I'm 1 Peter 5a, I'm the roaring lion, I'm coming around, and I want to take out Chris Flynn, let's say. Now he's going to come, like, I can, I can come and do this, but now look what's happening. Like, I was moving Dan Burnt a little bit, but I ain't moving this brother. Why? Because he's adopting that spiritual posture of shoulder width apart, knees bent, arms up, but now he's got other brothers who are doing the same. So that as I'm walking around trying to break into this community of gospel men who are, who are caring and, and loving one another and pointing each other to the gospel, they are standing there supporting one another in community saying, listen, let's walk like gospel men. Thank you, guys. Hey, right here. Yeah. They are standing there loving one another, doing everything in love. Bro, I saw the way you reacted to your wife. That's not what a gospel man does. Bro, I saw you be short with your child. That's not a way a gospel man acts like a man. Bro, you, you, you asked me to check in on you on how, how you act when you're alone and your wife's not around, and you just told me that you were watching things you shouldn't have been watching. That's not how gospel men are watchful. See, gospel masculinity, godly masculinity, gets worked out in the gospel as men come around one another 
saying, I need you to have my back as I seek to have your back, as we seek to have his back, as he seeks to have our back. And it just becomes this web of men looking out for one another who are watchful, standing firm in the faith, acting like men, being strong, doing everything in love. Let's pray. God, I'm thankful for your word because your word is so good. Your word calls and it corrects, it critiques and it guides, it exhorts, it rebukes, it trains us in righteousness. And God, if there are ever a group of people here on earth that need these things, it's men. But God, I'm thankful for the way that you love us and you shower us with your grace and you mold us and you call us not to fix our eyes inward on ourselves, but you call us to lift our eyes to the author and the perfecter of our faith, Jesus Christ, the perfect man who perfectly modeled these things for us. God, my prayer is just simple and sweet. God, would you, from the words this morning, do more than we could imagine? Would you begin to craft and mold and raise up a batch of gospel men who are watchful, who stand firm in the faith, who act like men, who are strong, doing everything in love as they walk linked arm in arm in community with other gospel men who are seeking to do the same. It's in the powerful name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.